Hello, and welcome to some Derps Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And we live in a society, but before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks at home what it is we do on this <laughs> podcast? <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know why that caught me so hard. Uh, <laughs> on this podcast, we like to talk about games, but we also like to talk about like you said, living in a society. Uh, the Joker is the top movie at the box office. It just made $100 million, which is just like an absolutely insane thing. Beating you know, out like cast the, favorite Venom for yeah, October, yeah, oh, I think. Yeah, exactly. For, for the record in October. Um, this, like, it is the weirdest thing. Because, like, if you describe Joker to somebody as, you know, like a Scorsese-esque, you know, 1980s, period piece about an anti-hero alienated from society or whatever everybody would be like oh what like that's gonna make like 10 grand and you know like fucking get a bunch of oscars or something but if you explain it as like it's the origin story of one of the most popular supervillains of all time or whatever it's like oh well that makes sense i get that you know um and i guessed Maybe deftly, maybe not. Who knows? We'll talk about it. Uh, the Joker has combined those two things into a uh, <laughs> a single a single movie. Yep. Um, so, tr- as is tradition, we'll give our pre-spoiler uh, impressions first. Um, I'll go first. Uh, so, I thought the movie was good. Um, I thought it was very good, but I don't think it was great. I think. Um, you know, I've heard, I've heard the comparison from Red Letter Media that it's basically baby's first taxi driver, um, which kind of, uh, goes to lose the comparison you made earlier. Um, I thought some of the messaging was a little bit muddled, um, that, or it's maybe doing different things than I've heard proper popularly interpreted. Um, I thought Joaquin Phoenix's performance was really good. Um, and I thought the cinematography was pretty good. Um, but I thought the plot was fairly predictable, um, uh, but I, I definitely enjoyed it, and I definitely think it's worth a watch. What about you, buddy? What did you think? Yeah, I, I'm mostly in that same uh, camp. I, I simultaneously think that Joker is really getting, you know, like, too much hate, and it shouldn't be, like, memed on this much. You know, like, it's a, it's a legitimately good movie that kind of doesn't deserve the, the, the certain kind of dragging that it's getting, right? But also at the same time, God, fucking, yes, it does. It does so bad. And it really pisses me off because it's like simultaneously, it's like both. Because on one hand, I do want to say like, yes, this is like a serious movie that takes itself very seriously, right? And all this other kind of stuff. And it like is a good movie that is, um, it's doing the work, right? Like, and it does the hard stuff. I think uh, Joaquin Phoenix kills it. Uh, I do agree with you that the plot is predictable. I have I have two kind of like broad complaints, but the thing that I am most impressed with is how true to form this feels as a Joker movie, right? Which is, you know, I'm obviously a huge comic nerd and I love the comics and I especially love movies like this, which are these kind of singular takes on characters and some of them feel true to form and some of them don't, right? Like I kind of have complained in the past how I don't really feel like... You know, like, the, the, the Thor that exists in the Marvel Cinematic Universe doesn't feel true to the Thor that exists in the comics that I love, right? But this Joker feels true to the Joker in, in the comic book universe, which I absolutely did not expect. I thought that this movie was going to be, you know, a, I don't know, like a Super Mario Brother, 
brothers kind of situation where like the source material is basically discarded from the outset and used for an entirely different purpose right um which turned out kind of like not to be the case uh i also think that this movie is (sighs) it's a little bit cumbersome in its thematics I, I, I came away with it in a little bit in the same way that I came away from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where I was a little bit like, what's the point of all that? And the truth is, the point is very stupid and straightforward, and maybe I shouldn't care this much, but like... <coughs> yeah, yeah. I, you I, know, I, it, it's just not a... It's, it does not have very profound things to tell you, the audience. It just kind of... I don't know. It just kind of is. Yeah, I, uh, so, I, I, think, I think it does that with, like... You know, I, I think I broadly agree with you, but I think part of it is it's intentionally muddled in its message and as a way to kind of like cultivate itself as a more serious movie, right? Yeah, like, I, I think that muddling is very true, right? Like there's a lot of evidence that I want to bring up kind of in defense of the movie and say like, oh, like this is neat and that is neat and I like the way it does this, that or the other thing, right? Um, and there's a lot of stuff that I would bring up and then say this is bad that's bad you know what i mean and like those are so there's kind of so there's good stuff and bad stuff and they're sort of warring in my own head and that kind of creates that like muddled feeling but uh the acting absolutely carries it i think the direction the cinematography was about fine i really liked the music um it was very focused on cellos and strings in a way that i did not expect i actually kind of thought that this was going to be a little bit of a maybe this is just bad expectations but i walked into it thinking it would be a little bit of like a jukebox kind of thing where Mm. it's like oh we're doing a period piece let's put in like overwrought shit from the 70s and 80s do you know what i mean but uh no they do not play fortunate son and he doesn't go to vietnam uh it's just you know uh uh a broody kind of melancholy soundtrack that feels very very um true to form i guess and uh and yeah i would definitely recommend it i think it's like a seven out of ten uh i am unsurprised that it has made this much money especially given kind of like the hullabaloo that surrounds it a little bit um but yeah it's uh it's a it's a good movie yeah it's like yeah Uh, it's a good movie (laughs) i'll agree with that do do we want to hit the spoiler warning then all right uh, this is your spoiler warning. If you haven't seen Joker, I would suggest going to see it. I don't think it's – like I said, I think the plot's predictable, so I don't think it's terribly spoilerable. But I think it's worth a watch. Uh, so I would recommend turning off this podcast and going to watch it before you listen to the rest of this podcast. Um, I think that will do it for the spoiler warning. So so what were the first like spoilery things so you want to get into? Quick, as a quick recap because I'm going to try and uh, – blaze through the plot if you haven't seen the movie um it stars joaquin phoenix as arthur fleck who is like the eponymous joker character he works for like a rent a clown agency and he just is the very typical sort of like put upon um you know he has a crummy job a crummy apartment he's taking care of his mom he doesn't have a lot of money there's not a lot of bright stuff in his day uh and you also know from the very beginning that he is suffering from uh, a kind of a variety of unspecified and specified, you know, mental illnesses, right? Like depression and and uh, and a specific one that just kind of makes him laugh uncontrollably at inappropriate times. Yeah, uh, and and the card he hands to like this the first time that this uh, comes up, um, he hands a card to him and that says it's from it's a side effect of some sort of brain damage. Uh, yeah, so the plot really kicks in when he gets attacked on a subway by three sort of like wall street guys while he's in his clown makeup 
uh, and he pulls out a revolver and shoots the three of them, which sort of sets off this urban legendifying of the murders in a very distraught Gotham City where the murders are seen as a kind of uh, populist uprising against the upper class who are, you know, oppressing in various ways the people of the city. Uh, the Joker, I'm sorry, well, Arthur Fleck kind of spirals down into his own delusions and mania, including hallucinating a relationship with the uh, with Zazie Beetz, who was Domino in Deadpool 2, who was his neighbor. Um, it looks as though they have a romance, but then you realize that he's just been deluding himself this entire time. Did, did you see uh, that coming? Because I definitely uh, did. I knew, like, immediately that it must be. Like, it was too, it was too sudden. I had the thought. I didn't see it coming, but I had the thought in the sense of, uh, I was like, I kind of didn't give the movie credit, to be honest with you. I was like, the moment when she knocks on his door and is like, hey, were you following me? But, like, being flirty, I was like, oh, my God, this movie is going to do it, isn't it? Right? That, like, that is a desirable thing for this, like, female character. And she's going to kind of be, like, a little bit of, like, a... Um, uh, what's the quirky dream girl thing? Oh, uh, a manic pixie dream girl. Yeah, she could uh, be a little bit of like the manic pixie I mean, dream girl. She could also thing. have been like a Harley Quinn stand-in, right? Like, because that's very Harley Quinn, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I was kind of like, oh, like this movie doesn't realize kind of how gross it's being, right? Like Arthur spends his whole day stalking her, and she finds it flattering, whatever. And so I just, I just didn't give the movie enough credit to be honest. Uh, and so when it pulled off, like the no, he was just hallucinating all that. I was actually kind of like. Oh, well, good job, right? Uh, but I definitely did have the thought of, of, of where I was just kind of like, this can't be fucking real, right? Like, there's no way that... Yeah, no, uh, my, my initial read of this. that scene was that he had successfully fooled her into thinking he was joking, right? Because he immediately follows that up with, like, another joke that she doesn't, like... Well, like, I don't think he means it. Like, one, one of the big things is that he doesn't, like, get humor, right? Like, he just kind of, like, he... There's this great scene in the in the comedy club where... He's like laughing offbeat with everybody else, just kind of randomly, and it just shows that he doesn't quite get it. Um, but he said something like, "She said something about like like shooting herself or shooting someone." He's like, "I got a gun," and she took it as a joke. I think that like, like she, I thought that she had taken the whole thing as a joke. But yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your your plot summary. Continue. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, and so and he spirals sort of out of control until he begins just murdering wantonly. Um, he ends up killing his own mother after she has a stroke. Uh, he ends up killing uh, one of his former co-workers. And the climax of the movie takes place in a TV set where, like in a TV studio, um, where a late night talk show host has picked up his comedy routine, which is really bad and cringy and awful, right? And made fun of it, kind of in the way that, like, a Jimmy Fallon would, like, make fun of viral videos, or, like, even, not even Jimmy Fallon, like, Tosh.0, Point Point right? yeah, yeah. Which I found, which I found very anachronistic, to be honest with you. I was like, this doesn't fucking, nobody does that shit in the 80s, like, whatever. Um, so they invite, they invite Arthur into the studio, he shows up in his clown makeup as the Joker, he confesses to the murder, and then murders... Uh, the TV host Murray Franklin in front of a live studio audience, which sets off massive riots throughout the city, uh, wherein he gets captured by the police, but then freed by anarchistic followers of the urban legend Joker, if not him personally as the Joker. Um, 
before he gets committed at the end of the movie and then I guess murders his psychologist. This is actually my favorite scene in the movie at the very end um, where he murders his psychologist off screen and you can only tell because he walks out of the room with blood trailing from his footsteps uh, and then gets into a very like slapstick chase with an orderly that was the first time that I was kind of like laughing along with the, the Joker, which is... A great segue into my first real point uh, of contention with this movie, which is the Joker isn't funny. And I think that is a weird thing, but, like, I really, really wished that when Arthur kind of devolves into this madness, his comedy senses actually clicked on. And even if it was in a very black comedy or dark comedy sort of sense, he was able to make not only the people around him laugh, right, but, like, me, the audience viewer, laugh. And I I was hoping that that was the case, and I thought that that was going to be the case. I felt like they were setting that up, right, that, like, when he was normal, he was, you know what I mean? Like, when he was normal, he was... Uh, unfunny and awkward and weird but the crazier and crazier he got the more and more like socially acceptable or whatever i thought that that's where they were going with the we live in a society kind of approach um eventually they don't do that and they go the opposite way um and i don't don't know if he sucks i don't know like, like there's a couple of moments and it's, it's not him doing it on purpose but there are a couple of moments that i laughed at um that are like really weird in a way, right? Like there's like when he's talking to the cops outside of the hospital, he like walks into the sliding door in like the most slapstick moment, right? Like um what was the other there were a couple other yeah, things. Yeah, see that was exactly what was putting me on this path, right? Okay. Like, that this is what made me think that he was going to become more and more funny and it was kind of kind of like end in that like black comedic sense i was expecting a confrontation with murray at the end of the movie to be one where murray is like and this happens with the joker in the comics a lot where murray is like i've figured you out or whatever but the joker is quicker and funnier and wittier and more clever than whoever it is who thinks he's kind of figured that's like that's sort of the the that's sort of like the principal interaction that a lot of people have with the Joker, right? They think they figured it hit him out, and he is crazier and more dangerous, and they are underestimating him, right? And so I imagined a version where Murray starts kind of like sticking to it, and the and the Joker is just like hitting him with zingers in the way that you know like Chris Pratt on a on a late night show would with like Conan O'Brien, right? Right, right. Like that sort of thing, and he actually comes off in front of a TV like really charismatic and funny, maybe a little bit edgy, right? You know, or whatever. And then he like shoots Murray in the fucking face, right? I did not expect the thing where like the audience was like booing him or whatever. And like the one joke he told was kind of like an anti-comedy black joke. Yeah. Wasn't funny. And nobody like in universe, like nobody like laughed at it. And then the very climax of the movie, which was structured like a joke, but the we live in a society moment for those of you who did not for those of you who did not attend the joker and did not get to witness this honestly this amazing piece of filmmaking where the joker says what do you get when you cross <laughs> a, a downtrodden and like shit upon guy with a society that treats him like trash and then he pulls out his gun and he shoots murray and he screams you get you you get what you deserve yeah and 
it was I burst out laughing because it was the climax of the movie and he was basically saying we live in a society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And I was like <laughs> And it almost like would have ruined the movie for me. I probably it probably would have ruined the movie for me if it didn't end as well as it did. Um, so 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 to your point about like him like growing into like somebody confident, I feel like th- this is kind of like Florida's story, right? Like he doesn't really f- fully grow into that role until he shoots Murray, right? Until he like, I don't know if I'm going to be a little bit more, you know, like circumspect about it, like kills his father, right? Like, cause Murray's like, he, he's constantly looking for a father figure in this. Um, and so like, that's the point where he like breaks free of the person that he was, um, which I think is another kind of thing here, right? Like he, he stops, he stops trying to be somebody else and he finally is himself or something like that, right? Like, um, and that's the transformative moment where he shoots Murray and that's why he becomes more kind of like more the, the kind of Joker that we know um, in the psychiatrist's office, right? Where he laughs yeah, see, and he's like, you wouldn't get the joke. Yeah, okay, I get that. I, I guess I was seeing it a little bit in a different light. Like, sure. so for instance, in the scene where... This is honestly the pinpoint of the movie that I think if it had nailed this, I would have really loved it. Um, the moment when he's in his apartment with his two co-workers and he brutally murders the one guy with a pair of scissors as he's shirtless and he has the white paint on. Uh, and there's a little person there who is afraid out of his mind, right? And the right. Joker has like blood splashed across his face and he's like, hey, you can go, right? And so the little person runs to the door but the deadbolt, or not the deadbolt, like the chain, the chain lock, which is out of his reach, is like locked. I was like, oh my god, he did it on purpose, and that's the joke, and he's gonna kill the kid, right? And this, and this was, and I was like, this is it. This is like the the transcendent moment. But no, then the Joker just gets up, unlocks the chain lock, and lets him out, and says, "You were always nice to me. Like everybody else was shitty, but you were always nice." And lets him leave, and that's the last we see of him in the movie. I think this fails for two reasons. One, uh, I would have loved it to be that little bit of comedy where the Joker is literally playing a prank on a murder victim before he, you know, wrecks this dude with another with scissors or whatever else, you know, um, he would have uh, he would have had to kill him. Um, but the other thing that I think it fails is it turns the movie from a villain story into an anti-hero story, um, because it establishes that Joker does have a kind of like code of ethics that he's like living by and that he is like nice to nice people and that he's only targeted, targeting people who kind of like unjust, who have, who have committed some injustice against him. Right. See, I, I don't I don't know if I like buy that entirely. Like one, like uh, so, just kind of your first point, right? Like the like the entire movie is just him being unintentionally funny, right? And I think that was another piece in that line, right? Like the audience is laughing. The audience laughs when he runs to the door. The audience laughs. Um, uh, I think for the last time when like he goes to 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 speaking to the camera after he shot Murray and it cuts, I laughed at that. Um, but I think that like, I don't think you need to think that like, he's got a code of ethics, just that like, he spared the one guy that was nice to him. Right. Like, I I don't like, I don't think that you need, you need to read that. He's like, he's doing it because he's got like some goodness to him. I just think he, I read it as he, he in the moment chose to spare the one guy because there was, you know, he didn't need to kill him. Right. Like it's, it's more arbitrary than anything else. At least that was. Would that you was say? How, would you say that this is an anti-hero story or a villain story? Um. Huh. Because I, I think I, that moment is the line between the two. I, right? I think. I kills, think I can grab that. Essentially, an innocent person like that 
he would have been a villain, right? But by choosing to allow the innocent person to go, it cemented in an anti-hero territory. Uh, I might buy that. I also think the messaging on this movie is super, like, muddled, right? Like, he kills right, he, I, I don't, he kills the psychologist, right? Like, the psychologist didn't do anything to him. Yeah, I guess that's fair. But that's, like, so, it's, it's you know, because it's part of, like, the epilogue. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know what you're saying. Count in, the same sort of, uh, in the same sort of way. I mean, one of the things that I like about the film is that it was encouraging me to feel sympathy for the Joker without feeling empathy for him. And this was something that I, that I thought was very important. Um, I was worried that the movie was – and this is part of why I missed the, the Zazie Beats thing um, – because I thought that they were going to go this sort of direction where they were going to kind of make you uh, where the movie was really going to frame the Joker as kind of like correct and put upon in a way that is unjustified. Right. And that has nothing to do with kind of like himself. Like he is just sort of like a victim of like the uncaring, you know, uh, whims of a society that is, that is so, so large and so powerful. Um, but they undermine that with the, uh, uh, but they undermine that with the whole thing with Thomas Wayne, which I really, which I really liked. Um, that was the that was the plot twist that I thought was redemptive in a way. Um, which part? It, the the part where it became unclear whether or not uh, the Joker's mom was delusional or. Uh, well, they, they made it very clear that she was. <laughs> no right i know but the but oh. the thing well but like hypothetically speaking right oh, okay like, it is in the, in, in the moment he where he's talking to be, thomas okay yeah, yeah 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 he still could be thomas wayne's like estranged kid right or whatever because like you know there's stuff with the paperwork or whatever there's enough doubt that you could kind of like say that coin flips either way but i thought that it was going to definitively say no he is thomas wayne's son and thomas wayne is being a complete asshole to him but just by making it ambiguous it puts you in the position where you do have to kind of be like wow yeah Thomas Wayne just got accosted by a random guy who is yelling at him in a fucking bathroom at a gala. Do you know what I mean? Where yeah. like you are sort of you are sort of shunted out of the the Joker's POV in a way. The same thing sort of happens with like the guy who's legitimately being nice to him in the hospital, right? Like this is sort of like the villain thing, right? Where like a villain is mean to innocent people. Um, the guy in the hospital, he's like shooting the shit. He's like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm just a clerk, but like, let's take a look at it or whatever. And he gets like a good, you know, 30 seconds of sort of like chatty dialogue to sort of like make him likable and relatable, at least in that sort of like snap judgment sense that you get, um, as an audience member and the Joker, you know, steals the thing from, from him. And so by like slowly sort of like pulling you out of the Joker's POV, you get close enough to be like, I understand what this guy's going through. I understand his emotional state. I understand what he's feeling, but you're not empathizing with him in the same way that I've complained about with Thanos, right? Where like the movie, uh, infinity war sort of frames Thanos in an empathetic light where it's not just that you are trying to understand him, right? But that you are encouraged to feel the, the loss that he feels. I didn't, I never really felt for the Joker in a way. Does that make sense? Because I felt like the movie was keeping me at arm's length, which was good. Yeah. I mean, mm, I don't know how much I agree with you on that, but I take your point. Like, I know, I, I think, I think that the kind of thing with the, with the Joker is that like he, I, I guess when he mothers his mother, I guess it's like the point where it's like a total disconnect, but it's like, 
don't know. I, I feel like there's a point where you're supposed to be like, I, I feel his pain, but I would not have reacted in this way. I would not have, you know, smothered my mother under a pillow. I would not have like gone to this movie, this TV show and like shot this dude in the face. Um, I don't know. I also think that like a lot of this is muddled by like literally everybody in this universe being a shithead. I don't think there's one good person. Um, there's like neutral people at best. Um, in this entire movie, which is kind of nuts. Um, and I, I think it kind of muddles the messaging, right? Like, you know, when, when Joker is on the, on, on the Murray show and, uh, he asks if he's being made, if he's making a political statement, he's like, no, everybody's just really shitty. And that, that's pretty accurate, right? Like, you know, everybody from like random kids on the street to like his coworker, who's in about the same position as he is, has been a complete and utter dickbag to him, including, you know, including like the the rich assholes, which is kind of like the uh, you know the the the, the populists have, have have usurped his movement to just kind of you know usurped his actions to stand for this anti-rich stance, which he doesn't really seem to he legitimately doesn't seem to embrace, right? Like he's just like, no, I don't care. Everybody's a shithead, um, uh, and so I, I I think that I like I said I think that kind of muddles the messaging, um, but. Uh, I, th- I think that definitely uh, that definitely kind of like bends it more towards like the uh, the anarchistic end of of the spectrum rather than kind of like the and that kind of like bends you away from the the, the empathy angle like you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I really like the nihilism. Um, I'm glad that he said you know he didn't care about the politics. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where like he doesn't care about the politics, and then he yells, "We live in a society," and shoots the dude in the face. So what are you gonna do? But like, yeah. I, I think the proper place for a Joker is to be a nihilistic character, right? Sure. Um, like we've talked in the past on about like you know villains a lot of the times will be like mirrors. Well, there's kind of like there's kind of like two ways you can have a mirror in a way like you can have sort of like equal opposite and like opposite opposite right like general zod is a is a mirror to superman because he has all of superman's same powers right but you know he's like a fascist dickhead right whereas like (coughs) lex Luthor is just a shitty frail human which is the opposite of all of the you know tremendous physical power that superman has but he's also like just as dangerous you know like a threat or whatever and in the same sort of way that there's that like superman like suther relationship i think the the appropriate relationship between batman and joker is one of nihilism right batman is principled the joker is nihilistic right even if like the principle that batman stands for is kind of like he hates criminals it's tough to you know like it's tough to nail. i think the best the best way to put that is that you know he never wants someone to experience the pain that he experienced, right? Which is, like, the mission. And you'll see that all the time in Batman comics or media, right? Like, Batman will talk about, like, the mission. And in order for the Joker to be kind of this opposite to Batman, he can't have a mission, right? He has no ideology. He has no, you know, kind of, like, driving goals or belief system in the way that Batman has all of that stuff because he is like the anti-Batman. He is like the opposite of Batman. So when they, when they at least made the pass at that level of nihilism, I was, uh, I was really happy because like, that was something that I, I kind of identified as being, I was like, this is like a key piece that you need in order to sell me on this character being the Joker and not just like Joaquin Phoenix with a bunch of shit on his face. Yeah, yeah, I think I agree with you on that. Um, 
there's like this movie follows like the Arthur so closely that it's hard to even like like pull out other plot points because it's all just kind of like his singular descent. Um, I wanted to know what you thought about one. Like I, I personally wasn't a big fan of kind of dickhead Thomas Wayne. Um, I like the Batman story better when like Thomas and Martha are pretty pure, but you know, that's just a preference thing. Um, uh, and you know, obviously this is the Joker story. This isn't the, the, the Batman story. Um, but I wanted to know specifically what you thought about um, basically the Joe Joe Chill, um, and this is something I, I do feel a little bit more strongly about, which is I like it when Joe Chill's more just kind of like a nobody, like you know, murder gone wrong. Like I was like I kind of prefer the version where like Joe, like you know, like you don't even know who he is; he's just kind of like a dude. Um, uh, but uh, and I, I really didn't like this kind of take of him as like you know some some rioter that just like who, who killed Thomas Wayne because he felt that Thomas Wayne deserved it rather than just being like a a, 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 a robbery gone wrong. Do, do you have any strong feelings about that? I have very strong feelings about that, but I put a lot of that aside because I was like, this is okay. not a Batman movie. Um, I That's also fair. agree with you. Thomas Thomas Wayne needs to be a fundamentally noble and upstanding figure, right? In order to, uh, in order to sort of like work for me, and that nobility can kind of show itself in different ways. So, for instance, you know, um, like Max Landis used to have this criticism of Batman versus Superman, where he thinks there in the in the opening montage where Batman's parents get killed in BVS, uh, you see Thomas Wayne curl his fist um, and get ready to punch Joe Chill before George Churchill like shoots him and he and he talks about how that removes your sympathy because he's not just an innocent victim right like Thomas Wayne is you know gonna like beat the shit out of this guy or whatever um but I actually disagree with that I think it just just it, it just demonstrates that Thomas Wayne is willing to fight for his family right like, sure I, I don't think there there's any reason to you know sort of assign but like yes like Thomas Wayne he is a doctor he really cares about people he's a philanthropist who, do, who donates like a bunch of his money and all this other kind of stuff um and that's a really important piece of the character it's something that can be played with for instance both the Court of Owls storyline and Batman R.I.P. which I I love a lot are built on the idea that Thomas Wayne and Martha Wayne were like secretly bad people doing, doing like bad things. But in the end, both of those get kind of shown to be wrong. Right. Um, but like, it's one of those things where in the middle of the story, it's like, Oh, was my dad secretly a huge douchebag? But it's just like a plot by the villain or kind of whatever. Um, I also dislike uh, Joe chill being anything but random. Um, there's the, Batman 1989 movie, uh, the, the Tim Burton 1989 movie, where the guy that kills Bruce Wayne's parents is the Joker before he gets changed, which I think is really stupid. Um, and then, of course, there's uh, a number of different iterations where, you know, like, Joe Chill is acting on behalf of some other sort of, like, wider kind of orders or conspiracy for instance batman begins does this which is a movie that i love a lot and i think it's the best of that trilogy um but in batman begins <coughs> it implies that joe chill was tasked to kill the waynes because he wasn't cooperating with the crime lords of the city which makes it which makes it a straight more straightforward revenge story right batman needs to get revenge on carmine falcone for arranging his parents murder more than he needs to undertake the mission because it was a random senseless act of 
you know criminal violence right. that ended up with his with his parents dying right if you if you individualize it i think that's bad um and i think batman requires it to just be random so that he can kind of just be motivated by the sort of um ephemeral idea of crime a violent crime rather than the specific uh you know like the specific actions of specific individuals who hatched a conspiracy or whatever like kill him or his parents so so uh, just you know this is more batman trivia but does when did joe chill get a name because i i think i kind of like i preferred it when i didn't know he had like a a personality outside of like unknown criminal Oh, Joe Chill actually went back and forth a couple of times. Um, he was originally named, I'm pretty sure, before the crisis, somewhere in the... Um, uh, okay, so he's originally named in 1948. And there was oh, a wow. bunch of this where he was where he was kind of like named and known, and it was this whole thing. Um, and then in the uh, uh, post-crisis version... They established Joe Chill, but then they got rid of Joe Chill. This is, and it's gone back and forth. Like, I'm pretty sure, um, uh, he, yeah, so, okay, so in Crisis on Infinite Earths, it gets reestablished that Joe Chill kills Batman's parents, right? Um, then in Zero Hour, which is hypertime, which is the, hi- the hypertime thing, it gets pulled out. So, he no longer is the uh, he's no longer the murderer. It's just some random guy who there's never any justice. Then, in Infinite Crisis in 2006, it reestablishes that Joe Chill is the murderer, and it just goes back and forth like that. Um, I don't mind Joe Chill having a name and kind of his own little mythos around him, um, but I do mind when it becomes like it to that kind of conspiracy level. Uh, when it comes to, like, the killings or whatever. If the Waynes are specifically killed for any reason other than I'm Joe Chill and I don't have a lot of money and those pearls look really fucking valuable, I just get, like, pissy. Yep, that, that makes sense. I think I think I, I, I generally I generally agree with that. Um, um, so something else I wanted to interrogate for a little while is you, you said that you thought this felt very true to Joker. And um, I'm obviously not as well-versed in the comics as you and... Um, I agree that this feels like a Joker, um, but um, he doesn't feel like he's like – this is not the origin story for like any of the Jokers that we've seen on the big screen at least. Um, no, yeah, and he, he is I, – I think of this is as a elsewhere title, right. if that makes sense, um, where – you know the 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 spirit of the character is there, or like at least enough of it. I think I have a better threshold for this than a lot of other people do, right? Like a lot of people maintain that BVS is not a Superman story or it is not a Batman story um, for a variety of reasons, and I would and I would argue with a lot of those people, obviously, um, because I do think it is right. But I get I get a certain sense that people have a certain might have in the same way that I have kind of a uh, a looser. Uh, or a more ironclad suspension of disbelief, I think I have a, a, a more uh, forgiving tolerance for kind of like alternate takes on these archetypal characters. I'm pretty much down to, to you know, watch Batman Ninja or whatever else, you know what I mean? Like, I, I find a lot of that stuff really interesting and really compelling, and I'm always um, kind of like on board to see Batman, the Joker, Green Lantern, whoever, sort of like reinterpreted by new writers and new artists doing sorts of new things. I think of that as being a very, like, 
comics thing, to be honest, just because, you know, creative teams shift around a lot, and Jeff John's Superman is never going to be the same as Richard Donner's Superman, is never going to be the same as, you know, Brian Azzarello's Superman, and uh, and you kind of just sort of have to, like, roll with the punches, in a way, um, but uh, but yeah, so I, I think of this much more as like an Elseworlds sort of title-y thing. People have talked about, by the way, that this is secretly the origin movie to the Robert Pattinson Batman story, which, let me tell you, if that is the case, holy shit, is that the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But, yeah, hey, what do you do? Because that also makes, like, that makes, like, the Joker, like, at minimum, like, 50 when Batman's like Batman, right? Like, like he like the character's supposed to be like thirty something, right? In this movie, yeah. So like, like the time, like you know, I was I was doing this math. I'm like, maybe you can like say that he's like twenty something, and Bruce is like twelve, and you can get like it down to like ten ish years of difference. But that still makes him fairly old when when Batman becomes Batman, right? Because Traditionally, Bat- he, Bruce Wayne becomes the Batman in like his in like thirties, right? Yeah, yeah. So Bruce Wayne, uh, he like goes on his like sojourn or whatever to like learn, and he like learns how to be super cool and everything. I think he goes to Princeton, so he gets he he gets a degree from Princeton, and then he like travels the world and learns from fucking like ninjas and shit, um, and then he comes back at around thirty to Gotham City. Um, where he, like, starts enacting his sort of, like, criminal rampage. I actually like it when Batman is a little bit older. Um, I've always liked kind of 40s to 50s Batman, uh, just because the for two reasons one the 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 sort of comics batman right when i was getting into and kind of grew up with the comics was sort of around there because he is sort of the dad of the bat family and he has a bunch of like teenage sidekicks right right <laughs> and it's weird to think of like dick grayson is in his 20s and striking it out and bloodhaven as a police officer by day nightwing by night or whatever and batman's only like 35 you know right, what i mean right, right. Like, yeah, obviously yeah. he needs to be he needs to kind of like be a little bit older than that um, and also just that, like, there's a certain sort of, uh, like, patriarchal role he plays in the wider universe, right? Um, this happens in a lot of ways. Uh, this, this happens, all, by the way, to Peter Parker as well, which I find very funny because it never fits. But, like, because Batman is the most popular character, right, all the other sorts of characters, even if they don't have, like, a good reason to, sort of have this, like, deferential relationship to Batman because he's so cool and popular, if that makes sense, right? So, like, a lower-level, even, like, a mid-tier character, right, like Green Arrow or someone, feels like he's a little bit, like, less cool and subservient. Or, like, a character I love, like Aquaman, right? Like, he's, like, a little bit below Batman in terms of, like, the hierarchy, right? right. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman are this, like, the triumvirate, yeah. tier. Yeah, this flagship tier, and they kind of, like, get to be above everybody else, and you kind of have to be old in order for that to be the case. Yeah, yeah, or at least old enough, right? Yeah, like, you have to be, like, old enough. You have to be, like, you have to be on the on the daddy side of things. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, if this was the if this was the origin story for like the Robert Pattinson version or whatever, I would really not like that. Especially because like we have evidence that Thomas Chain, like you know, it in the in the version of things where of the ambiguity, right, where the Joker's mom is completely delusional. Um, that's that's 
makes it a little bit better because you do sort of get in the position of like, yeah, Bruce Wayne literally has no idea what this crazy person is doing. In, and or I'm sorry, Thomas Wayne literally has no idea what this crazy person is doing. And so he is very rightly kind of like pissed off and defensive about it or whatever. Um, but even just like the way that he like shits on people in the media, I felt like was honestly like a little too like harsh, if that makes sense. Um, also, there's the guy who I'm pretty sure is Alfred was there with like yeah. in that Bruce Wayne scene. Because he has an English accent and he's like the. He looks kind of like was... like a young Ricky Gervais. He's a little bit too tubby, a little bit too like, like maybe tubby is the wrong word, but he's he's, he's a little bit too like, uh, what's what's the word I want to use? Like Cockney and not enough like proper English. Yeah, uh, and like there's a certain kind of like I don't like th- I like a very very gentle uh, Alfred. Like there's a certain sort of like people p- people sort of like a a, a, a combaty you know fighting with his dukes up alfred that like beats somebody with like a walking stick or whatever and uh, and that's kind of okay in like uh it's sort of like yoda using a lightsaber in attack of the clones in a way like that's just not the role that i want to see alfred in i want alfred to be um you know yeah I'm, I'm okay with like gentle, gen- so. yeah i'm okay with like gentleman alfred that's like occasionally a badass when he really needs to pull it out but is normally just kind of like prim and proper mm-hmm. um but, like, I, I think I agree with you. I don't like kind of, like, rough-and-tumble Alfred. I don't think it fits the character very well. Yeah. Um, and so this Alfred, uh, I was like, oh, boy. Yeah. Woof. You know what I mean? Like, he, he looked like he was willing to, like, throw down. And it's yeah, like, yeah. I get, you know, like, that's an okay character archetype, I guess. But it just that didn't feel very It doesn't like feel like Alfred. Alfred. Yeah, yeah. But all of this is basically fine because, like. It's yeah, it's of, a Joker you know, movie. It's a, yeah. it's a Joker movie, not a Batman movie. So I, I give it a lot of, uh, I give it a lot of slack for that reason. And I do think that it, like, legitimately adds to the drama, right? Um, uh, I, and also, just, like, in a lot of ways, any version of things where I have a good understanding of like the joker's mental state which i do in this movie and is a good thing for the purposes of this movie right like i need to understand my protagonist um in a movie that is about them uh is not a great is not a great situation for the joker in a more like ensemble sense right like the joker as a villain doesn't really like work as well if i don't know you you are so completely in his mind right um and so doing any sort of follow-up to this movie is kind of inherently flawed from that yeah 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 like i think a big a big part of why like say the dark knight rises joker works so well is that um you're not really sure what's up with him right like he tells multiple different stories about how he got the scars on his face Mm -hmm. right like and you're never quite sure exactly like how unhinged he is um, and I think that's important for the character. So I think I absolutely agree with you. Like knowing exactly how, how who Arthur Fleck is, I don't think will, would lead to a good follow up. Um, uh, so c- kind of in that vein, though, I did want to interrogate a little bit. Like I was thinking a lot about like, did this movie need to be a Joker movie? And I think that there's some aspect of it that doesn't. Right? Like in, in terms of like, it's kind of like Taxi Driver, which doesn't have, uh, you know, which isn't obviously a DC Universe movie. Um, but like how much but like there there are some things that like it leans on that I think enhances the experience. I think it's a very unique p- place right that we're in right now where like these characters are in the cultural consciousness is enough that you can do fun things with it right like like this movie or like I guess Logan, I think is the other big example that pops into mind of like movies that like 
aren't necessarily about the characters on their face, but kind of like leverage them to 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 their advantage. Um, do, do you have any deeper thoughts about that? I, I just thought it was so. It was I think comics in general. I mean, part of this is just like the the times that we are in are content thirsty in a way, right? Like you're always looking to for stuff to make. And one of the nice things about comics is because like. Because putting out a 22-page comic, this is this is okay. Comics have to be very plot-heavy, right? You kind of can't sail far on a a story. How do I want to put this? Okay, so comic book fights are actually not super engaging or interesting, right? We talked about this a little bit in the Bia, the Boku no Hero ap, uh, episode, right? Where, like, you if you just have visuals of the fight in your comic, people just flip through, right? Because you look at the picture, look at the picture, look at the picture, turn the page, right? But if you put text on that page, you put words on that page, they slow down, and that's how, what helps create pacing, right? And so what manga does, or what Boku no Hero does, is it takes crucial moments right and it stretches them out because it puts you in their head and you hear whoever right like Midoriya's inner monologue is he's like oh I can't can I do it I'm I'm powerful enough I have to do it I have to move now and that I find that excruciating but it comes from the manga where like you have to sort of pull apart these super drama dramatic moments to give them the the weight for people to kind of sit on them right um what American comics do is they fill that with plot, right? With plot twists and with new information hitting the reader and with all of the, you know, like all of the, the machinations of moving from point A to point B getting filled in in the middle of, right, like big high caliber uh, action scenes, right? <coughs> um, and, and so what that has done... It, because you're putting out, you know, hundreds of comics, right? You put out a dozen of each of them every year, and you do that for the last 80 years, and that's a giant mine of content for people to, like, delve into, right? For, like, if you're a corporate executive at Warner Brothers, right, there is always something that you can do with a DC Comics property because there is that sort of, like, IP basis, for you, right? But the interesting thing is that like superheroes as a genre have kind of evolved out of being a true like genre in and of themselves, right? Like so for instance, I would call the Spider-Man the the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, right? Are like true blue superhero genre movies. But at this point in time, we are existing in a world where superheroes are genre blended into other genres all the time, right? Like the space opera or the teen comedy, you know, or the western or what have you like what, right. or the spy thriller or whatever. People or the heist, about this yeah, for a yeah, long yeah. Time. Yeah, the heist movie, all exactly, all of this stuff. Um and so I don't think that there's anything special or novel about Joker. All it's done is take that same genre fusion and gone, well, why don't I do a 70s, you know what, like, why don't I do, like, a a 70s auteur uh, taxi driver Scorsese movie with it, right? And that that is what what they have made. And that is a cool thing, and it's a fine thing, and it's a good thing, obviously. Um, But, uh... But, uh, yeah, I think it, it, just like any of these other sorts of things, is following that same sort of pattern where it's like, you know, you are, you are, take, you are pulling this 
uh, this superhero thing and you're putting it somewhere else. Um, and I think, honestly, to be it helps you because, like, one of the things about the superhero genre in general is that it is very, like, arch and archetypical. And it lets you get away with stuff that you couldn't do if you were just playing it straight. I think if this was just a played straight movie that was not the Joker, but was the Laffy guy or whatever, people probably would have like laughed this out of theaters because it would have been read as a true seventies crime drama or whatever. And it wouldn't have really like passed the test because it's not true to form enough. If that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I feel you too much weird shit in here right like the joker killing a couple of people while he has clown makeup on and that's starting this giant political populist movement is like that's something that works in a comic book sense it's something that does not work in a very like serious crime drama movie sense do you know what i mean yeah and not only does it work only work in a comic book sense but it only works (laughs) if you already know who the joker is right like if like we had never heard of the joker and we were told like this is a batman new batman villain origin story it probably would have had the same effect like what the fuck are we doing it also just like reorients the way that you know we engage um with the like with the 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 movie itself right like so for instance it's when i think about bad times at el royale right bad times at el royale worked really well because it had a really complicated an innovative plot structure that was keeping me on the edge of my seats. It was the opposite of predictable, right? It was very tense and there was tons of drama and suspense to it. And I didn't know what was coming next. And that was, that was great. That, that like really like worked. Right. Um, and I, if Joker was not a superhero movie, I think that same expectation would have been in there for it in my head. And I would have just been like, really? That's, that's what it, it's just the trailer, right? Like it is, it is exactly what it says on the tin that would have been like a disappointing movie if it was like an original thing but because it is a joker movie all of a sudden i'm reoriented into thinking like okay well how are they going to do this interesting character in a in a in a new way it kind of recenters my focus away from plot stuff right like i like i talked about this when we were talking about aquaman right i actually just watched aquaman on the plane boy i love that fucking movie right but aquaman is a very predictable movie it's got an incredibly straightforward plot of the king arthur story which is literally i mean like it could not be more obvious and true but because it's an aquaman story i feel like it walks in with that expectation right? sure sure and then yeah, it is yeah, about yeah. you know like the visuals or the scale or the scope all of these other things that like or the action right like all of these other things that i would argue work really really well and are very compelling about that film even if the film is you know not the hardest plot to figure you know what i mean like everybody figured out that that story like immediately and i feel, i would say that's fine that's not really where the focus is but making it a comic book movie allows you to refocus like that yeah, no, I, I I think I agree with that. I, I I wonder if we maybe like start to turn to the dark side of this, where like the only way like an up and coming director can get their weird autori looking film made is by doing it through the lens of a superhero, right? Like you pick some like random third tier superhero, and it's like, well, like uh, I don't know, you you do like a uh, uh, like a like a What's the Darren Aronofsky film that everybody loves? Uh, the the one with the drugs. The one with the drugs? Oh, Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, you do Requiem for a Dream with, like, White Lightning or some other, like, Z-tier 
hero that yeah. like um um and you know part of me thinks that like if it makes more unique movies get made it's not the worst thing but like i don't know i'd at least be interesting yeah i also think the interesting thing is when um you look at like for like bright burn is the best example of this when you look at um how they basically did a riff on the Superman story without no, they didn't own the rights to Superman. Right. But they right, still right. did the riff on the story anyway. Um, I think those projects are just like inherently less successful. Cause there is like, there's, there's not the same sort of like comparative sense. It right, just reminds right. me of like other vaguely superhero things like, um, Hancock. Do you remember the movie Hancock? Yeah. Yeah. I, that, I do. You know, that was a superhero. Somebody just made up or whatever. Right. Or even like Chronicle. Right. Which, you know, obviously, um, is like a well-regarded movie, but you don't have the sense of comparison and contrast between things that you do by saying like, oh, well, this is what, you know, Christopher Nolan's Batman looks like. This is what Zack Snyder's Batman looks like. This is what Tim Burton's Batman looks like. This is what Joel Schumacher's Batman looks like. We can kind of all draw those to the same singular point and say, these are all Batman stories um, compared to, you know, Hancock, which is just Hancock. It's the only thing. Yeah, no, I, th- I think I agree with you on that. Um, yeah, I will say that I actually do, you know, like, now that I kind of mentioned it, I do think that the plot was very predictable, and I think it would have been a lot better if it was more varied um, or uh, complex. Um, I probably would have been more excited yeah. by a version of things that I couldn't so predictably see. There, there, there was actually a bit where... Um, the the first killing in the subway that took me by surprise because I saw like I you know you see that moment in the trailers where like he gets harassed in the subway or whatever I thought he was just gonna get his ass beaten again but when he pulls out the gun and shoots the three guys I was immediately like oh wow this is going a different direction yeah. than I thought it was so, so that's uh, something I wanted to bring up like in particular there's like something very specific about this is that um buddy have have you ever fired a gun uh yeah i fired a gun and i hit myself in the face with it because i didn't know exactly. <laughs> this is a All true right. story I, I i just have to tell this story i went to uh you know me the 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 suburban really like the urban new jersey kid right i went out to the boonies where my mom's cousins so i guess those, those are my second cousins um, in western Pennsylvania live and it was Thanksgiving and all of the girls were on kitchen duties and all of the guys went out hunting right? this is the first time that I had ever been hunting I think I was like 11 at the time and, uh, and they gave me a gun and we did a little bit of practicing in the woods which was probably illegal now that I think about it and they gave me a gun um, and I shot it and I just didn't anticipate the kickback and I hit myself in the face, and I got a bloody nose. And so they sent me back to the house where I helped make Thanksgiving. <laughs> is, is that the only time you've ever shot a gun? Uh, no, I it ended up shooting a gun later uh, in college, which I was very good at, actually. Um, I was weirdly, insanely good at shooting that gun. So um, I will point out that most movies kind of like, you know, mess with the sound effects, right? They, they, it doesn't found, sound like super loud or anything. Um, even the later gunshots in this movie didn't feel quite as real, but those three gunshots felt super freaking real. Like, like, like there was just something about the mixing where like it was loud. It was crisp. You got like all those like little edges of the noise that happened in real life that you don't hear. 
um, in movies most of the time. And I, I thought that was like super impactful. Um, uh, it was, it was, you know, frightening kind of like the shocking way, but I, I thought it was, I thought it was really important to making that scene really pop the way it did. Um, no, I, I mean, well. that's something I think about actually all the time. Um, especially cause like people think of the, of, uh, when people think of gunshots, they think of the unreality of it, right? They think right. of the media gunshot. They don't think of what a true gunshot is. So, so much so that, like, when you hear true gunshots, you're a little bit like, what is that? Like, for, for instance, famously, The Wire. All of the gunshots in the first season of The Wire are true practical gunshots, right? And they changed to the fake gunshots in season two, three, and four. Uh, and five? Are there five seasons of that show? Um, I'm not sure. I haven't watched yeah, it yet. I'm not sure either. Uh, you've never watched The Wire? Nope. Wow, I know. I know. I know. We live in Baltimore. How do you live in Baltimore? Not yeah, watching. I know. You just get harassed all the time? Yeah, a fair amount. Uh, <coughs> well, anyway, yeah. they switch back to the fake gunshots, and David Simon has talked about how people didn't be- – they, they were like, what's wrong with the fucking gunshots in this show? You know what I mean? Like, they were like, that's, those, that's not real. That's not what guns sound like. Um, so I, I always find that fascinating, right? Um, you know, like we talk about, I mean, it's funny to talk about this in the context of the Joker, but we talk about like media's ability to affect us, right? Right. And, uh, and you know, like, oh, like violent video games don't lead to violence and, and, and whatever else, but they do legitimately affect the way that we think about things, um, even if they don't affect the way that we think about incel people shooting up a fucking, a fucking theater. I saw like an Onion article or whatever that was like, all of the mass all of the all of the mass shooters in the joker look nervously at one another unsure of when to start their mass shooting <laughs> or whatever but uh yeah that whole oh god it's so dumb it really bothers me to be honest yeah but those i think those gunshots were sounded very real and made the scene pop a lot so yeah that's cool that's cool yeah um but yeah uh did we? Did did you want to talk about any? Did you, did you have a point for that that I interrupted before I? I uh, did I have uh, a point? What were you were talking about? about how 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 the scene like sh- like shocked you, but I wanted to tack on the thing about the gunshots. I just didn't oh know yeah if you had yeah yeah. yeah. Uh, my my real point was that that was where the plot kind of like gripped me and took me in a different mm. direction. It was pretty. I guess I'd say it's pretty fleeting, um, because at the end of the day. Um, I guess I did not maybe that only lasted like 10 or 15 minutes where I was like oh this is going in a different direction than I expected or whatever um, and then I was like oh I, I get it and then he's going to get on the show and then he's going to shoot the guy like once yeah. once, I, once you get to like the comedy club and sort of like piece it together from there it became very clear to me what was where we were ending up yeah, and I, I think that like, I think that this movie is as good as it is because Joaquin Phoenix does a great job with his acting, right? Yeah. Like, I think it elevates the otherwise kind of boringish material. I'm not boring, maybe not too strong, but you know, like the the roteness, I guess, of it. Like, um, the fact that it's like such like, um, I didn't notice this, but it was pointed out to me by a couple different reviews that like the camera just like is locked on Arthur Fleck and like rarely ever leaves him if at all. Um, and I think that 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 uh, like the, him, he he had to be a great actor in order for for this movie to work, and it did. So, um, but I think that's everything 
I really have about this. Do you have anything else you want to talk about with this movie? No, before you... and we missed a week, so there's plenty to catch up on. So yeah, tell me all about the launch of Free to Play Destiny. Destiny. How is the uh, haunted moon? Uh, the, the the well, the moon's haunted. So uh, moon's haunted. Uh, the, 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 I don't know if you've seen the meme, but it's like this. Uh, <laughs> it's this comic, and it's like this, somebody in the tower being like, "Oh, oh you're back earlier, guardian. You're back early, guardian. Moon's haunted." Well, what's that? Moon's haunted, and he click, and he like loads his, uh, or, you know, he slides to slide on his pistol. Um, uh, so I've been, I have been very much enjoying it. Um, the new content's pretty good. Um, Destiny was always fun past year two, um, so I'm glad to be back into it. Um, nothing is so super crazy yet that I have a lot to say about it. Right, like I feel like. I'll get into like kind of the nitty gritty of the system once I hit get close to the light cap and I have to start thinking about like my actual build instead of just equipping the highest light level stuff. Um, the early climb is pretty nice. I basically I hit the soft cap maybe yesterday or the day before, um, and I'm starting to build up things. I do like the season artifact in giving us giving you a little bit of a more of an infinite climb. I'm not so sure I'm on board with the season pass, which is kind of like feels very. Not so nice, but I don't know, like, it's not the worst thing. But, like, I, f- I feel like I say that a lot with Destiny. Like, it's not the worst thing, um, but it is... Yeah, I mean, I had a very good time with the... When I bought the Battle Pass in League of Legends, when we were playing League all the time. Um, which is kind of my first experience with a Battle Pass. I've never done that sort of thing before. Yeah. But I wasn't really sure if, like, that is normal or above average or below average sort of thing. Yeah, So so the thing that I don't like about the season pass and maybe you just get this when you buy so i actually need to check this because i'm not sure but um you buy the expansion right and my my i thought that it that the battle pass was or the season pass was on top of it but if it's part of the expansion i don't feel as bad about it um as kind of like a monetization scheme for an otherwise free-to-play game season passes don't bother me so much but it's like another thing on top of an already like pay-to-play game i don't like it so much it's just kind of like another level like you know first we had dlc then we had microtransactions now we've got like the systematized must keep playing version of microtransactions that is the battle pass there's just kind of like another layer on top of it and when like okay. you layer all these things together it starts to feel skeezy to me right like you can have like one or two of these but once you get past this it, kind of like eh, can you can you not um but you know what else what are you gonna do about it um it, it's a lifestyle game it's not it's it's still fun right like that's that's like i think the primary thing um but uh you know story's neat it ends on a cliffhanger because it's supposed to play out for the entire year so i'm looking forward to hearing, seeing more of it uh yeah uh what about you? How's been? How's WoW been? I mean, I've been playing a lot of it. I've been playing an insane amount of World of Warcraft. Uh, not even like I've been playing a little bit of Classic. Like I, you know, I'll go to Classic to kind of like uh, it's almost like a palate cleanser. Um, when I'm when when you go really hard, in <laughs> I'm tired of WoW. How about some WoW? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like they do feel like very different games um, in a lot of ways. Uh, there's actually a really good video that I should link you that talks about the kind of the intersection between wow and classic wow that i thought was really insightful but um uh so yeah i've been playing a ton of world of warcraft did we talk about 8.2.5 on this cast i don't 
think okay, so. Okay, so in our in our infinite chronicling of of WoW lore, eight point two point five came out two weeks ago, last week, um, which ended the war campaign. Um, it had a, you know like a short series of quests and then a couple of like big cutscenes, which is actually like really crazy. This is the first time that we've ever seen uh, like a big story like fully animated cutscene in like the middle of an expansion like this a lot of the times the cutscenes are all done with in-game assets uh rather than like the true kind of opening expansion quality um sort of uh sort of assets do have have, to for for everyone at home here's a quick summary of what uh of what happens sourfang and anduin get together and they decide that they're going to depose sylvanas but they're their power is pretty weak. Sylvanas still has the love of the Horde behind her, um, and uh, and Sourfang's rebels and Anduin's alliance soldiers are pretty depleted for their march on Orgrimmar. But they do so, right? They, they, they march on Orgrimmar. Outside the gates of Orgrimmar, though, Sourfang challenges Sylvanas to Makura, and in, the, and in front of all of the Horde, you know, like, lined up on this great... <laughs> excuse me giant like the giant wall of Orgrimmar um they have a fight where Sylvanas is using daggers and Sourfang is using Varian Rin's sword that he that Anduin has called Chalamane which is such a fan service moment but I like freaked out um in the fight Sourfang tricks Sylvanas into admitting that she doesn't give a shit about the Horde, that she never cared about the Horde, and that she's only interested in her own power. And when she realizes this, she blasts Sourfang, killing him, and flies away in her Banshee form, right? Uh, so, and then the, the Loyalists, you know, go into, go into take over Orgrimmar without a, like, without a siege or, like, Siege of Orgrimmar 2.0 sort of fight. Um, and... Uh, <coughs> <coughs> and so that's how the war campaign ends the the it is called the fourth war and uh anduin and, and Sourfang is dead but now there's a council that rules like the horde there's no new war chief um and so yeah that's the that's the story of 8.2.5 what what are your thoughts is that is that good or bad um i don't know like i haven't seen it myself so i don't want to like talk too much about implementation but like not a big fan of like war chief bad again right like not a big fan of like the horde aren't evil we we promise guys um i mean part, part of me like is i guess sympathetic to the writers because like there's no one i can think of on the alliance side that can really fall except for maybe Jaina and like um in kind of like the whole span of it right like Arthas was like the big guy right but that happened all the way back in you know before wow so like and it's still hard to kind of like pay if it's weird because like it's definitely part of the timeline but it doesn't feel like it's part of wow and I think he's he's got like such a big weight to his story moment that it kind of distorts things um I don't know yeah, I mean the new version of this is Taronda. Um, so in eight point one, like Taronda bound herself to the vengeful aspect of a loon, and like her eyes got all black or whatever, and she became the Night Warrior. Um, and 
like she doesn't want to sign the armistice. This all came out today because they've they've been talking about eight point three. But there's a lot of like little. This is something that they've been adding to the game, which I appreciate a lot. Which are just like these little character conversations that'll happen between. Uh, like the named characters, but Tarande and Anduin, Anduin would be like, hey, you need to sign the armistice. And she's like, oh, I don't want to fucking sign it when there's still a horde that I can kill or whatever. So people have been speculating that there's going to be some sort of comeuppance uh, for the uh, the Night Warrior stuff and for Tarande, who is, you know, genocide was committed against her people. She's probably uh, due a little vengeance. Uh, we're all pretty much on board with that. The big question is sort of where Sylvanas is going after this. We have just learned um, in eight point with 8.3 hitting the, the PTR today um, that the, the final patch of Battle for Azeroth is all about Nizoth, who is, you know, like the the... Uh, who is like an unbound old god at the end of 8.2 with his Shara, the player unlocks Nazoth's prison. And so he is now beginning to um, reestablish the Black Empire and he's starting in Old Doom and the Veil of Eternal Blossoms. Uh, and Nazoth is... Uh, and, the, and then... So... That happens, and then there's also Rathion, who's kind of coming back and is, is helping the player. You first have to, like, resist Nizoth's, like, mind control, and then you can go into Nihilotha, which is the final raid where you end up going and, and fighting Nizoth and imprisoning him again. Um, or we, well, we don't really know how that, that ends up. Everyone is assuming that he gets imprisoned again based on sort of the foreshadowing, uh, but it could be something, you know, could be a twist off the deep end. Um, well, it's good that Raytheon's <laughs> back, right? Like, he was, like, a big player in Mists, and they yeah, never really... Yeah, so in Mists, you get the legendary cloak with Rathion, and he's now doing another legendary cloak questline, which I'm a big fan of. <laughs> Neat. They just announced this today, and fucking Ian Azacosas had, like, the shittiest, like, grin on his face, um, where he's like, you know what Rathion loves? Cloaks. <laughs> like... <laughs> Uh. Yeah, the, but the cool thing that they're adding is they're calling these, like, visions of something, which is either Orgrimmar or Stormwind, but it's, like, an instance version of them, and you can enter in with one, two, three, four, five people, um, and the idea is that the content is harder than you, so you go in, and you fight a bunch of guys, but you will die and lose, um, like, even if you, like, pull well and stuff like that. Um, but that that's okay because you are earning like a progression, um, and the progression will help you like kind of like later down the line. So like, as you begin to farm these more and more and better and better, you get like stronger and stronger, um, at resisting, you know, their damage and fighting against them and all this other kind of stuff, which sounds pretty sweet. Yeah. No, that does sound neat. <laughs> um, Yeah. I don't know if I got anything to say about that, but that, that does sound neat. Um, cool. Uh, yeah. What else have What else have you been working on? Have you been Have you been playing anything besides? Uh, Was well, this just Destiny? Uh, I revisited Celeste because um, I was on a couple plane trips, and that's still a great game. Um, what oh else? My God, wait. I forgot about this. Yeah. Have I talked about the Banner Saga on this cast? No, no you have Last week off, right? Okay, so I bought Banner Saga for this Twitch. Um, or for the Switch, I'm sorry. And I... I really love that game. 
I really, really loved that game. It was like my game of the year, which I think was like 2014 the game came out. And I never played Banner Saga 2 or 3 because I lost my original, um, uh, I lost my original playthrough on like an old computer. And uh, I've been always, I always am like, oh, well, I want to replay the game or whatever. But I'm always like dragging my feet on, you know, going back and, and, and replaying the game. And I had uh, this really hard time diagnosing why, right? Because I was just like, what the absolute fuck, man? I love this game. I remember loving it so much the first time. Why can't I get back into it? And I think I've realized what it is. And part of it is just that, like, you know, I think, you know, I, I've become a different player as I grew older in, like, the intervening five years um, or whatever. But really what it comes down to is that the Banner Saga's story is all about kind of, like, the hopeless last stand against, like, the tides of dredge and all this other, you know, like, world-ending apocalyptic stuff. And so it's trying to get you to, like, recreate the Battle of Helm's Deep sort of, like, every day where it's, like, uh, you know, your ragtag group fighting against the overwhelming hordes but you just like barely make it out and i think that that's great for the story and i think that that's very appropriate for the story um and it's appropriate for the mechanics to reflect that story uh but when i play strategy games i hate that feeling like in the moment i hate the feeling that i could just lose at any second and even though i pull it off at you know invariably i have yet to lose a battle in like the 20 fucking battles that i've done so far in the switch version um but it just always feels like i'm one step away from getting fucked right and i never feel in control and i never feel like powerful or dominant or like i'm not playing anybody um and that's just like kept me away from the game in a way that i found was like very funny because it's it's not a game that i feel like i can save scum maybe you can i don't know but it's not a game that I feel like I can save scum. Um, and so in the way that like in Total War or something like that, and I'm doing something, but something like really left out of left field happens, I'm just like, oh, fuck. I just made this army, and then they attacked it with two stacks, and then you fight the battle, but the battle's too hard, and you just lose or whatever. And you're just like, oh, fuck, this sucks. And you're super like frustrated and mad, and you're just like, okay, well, I'm going to save scum, and I'm not going to move to that place where they're going to ambush me this time or whatever else. You know what I mean? Like, you can't do that in the Banner Saga. And even if you could, right, like, the Banner Saga is all about that feeling on, like, a narrative level. And so even though I really love that game, and I think it's really good, and I think that what they're doing is the correct thing that they're doing, it's also something that's keeping me from playing the game and i have a podcast that talks about those so i wanted to you know it sounds very much like just like you're not it's it's not for you in some way right like it's not vibing with you (laughs) or whatever um that's fine not every game is for every person um uh but yeah um kind of uh, i think part of it is that like the player end power never feels um like, so, for instance, something that happens in Hearthstone is a similar thing, right? Like, especially in the single-player mode, which is basically all I play nowadays. But, like, in the single-player mode, as you go through, the first couple of bosses are easy, but they get harder and harder and harder as you go along. Um, and the latter-end bosses will have really tough hero powers. They start with more mana than you, so they'll start at three mana. You start at one sort of thing. Um, and they'll have, you know, like, they'll just be strong, right? Um, but like the game also powers you up in a way that also feels, it doesn't quite feel fair, but it feels like equally unfair in the way that the opponent is being unfair. Right. Right. You know, like, so for instance, like, 
you know, I, I get what you mean, right? Like, you get these weird yeah, quest like, items that are, like, you get, you know, double... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, as I get my cards, I feel, and I get to choose my cards, and I get to choose my treasures and stuff like that, I get to feel like, oh, my God, what a great combination, this and that, or that and this, or whatever else. And, like, I can't believe I could... You feel... This is, like, the, the, the game empowering you, right? Like, you feel powerful for how you've interacted with the game. I feel powerful because I used the game mechanics in a way to create a really crazy fucking combo, and I can just sit on that combo for, like, the entire, you know, like, the entire game and, like, like beat up this boss. So, like, the, in, the, in the power creep arms race between me and the opponents, even though the opponents feel threatening and challenging, right, like, I still feel up to the task, in a way that I never feel up to the task in the Banner Saga, which I th- might be like might be the piece of it, I guess. Have you played the second or third ones in the series? So no, uh, I have just been slogging through this first one, and I'm trying really hard to get to the other side of it. The other thing is that like I know that there are story decisions in here that are going to affect those two, and so I get like very like hmm, 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 hmm about all of the like the different directions that the story can take. No, that, that makes sense. <coughs> oh, kind of in that vein, in the vein of Hearthstone, um, in the past two weeks, Eldraine, the new Magic the Gathering set got released. So that's like been my other big time sink is, is Magic the Gathering Arena. Um, and uh, do you know anything about this set? No, 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 no. Tell me all about it's it. It's like like half like Arthurian legend, half like classic fairy tales. There's a bunch of fairies. There's like, there's like a, a troll that like spawns goats for the other side. Um, there's like a bunch of cool things here. The the big mechanics are that like there are these things called adventures, which are it's a it's basically a creature and then in a corner of the frame you get like a spell and you can cast the spell. And once you cast the spell you put the card in exile and you can cast the creature card out of exile. And there's like one card that can remove a, an adventure card from exile, but um, generally it just kinda like goes there. Um, it's uh uh that mechanic is pretty neat um uh it's uh, what what else is what are the other big mechanics oh food food's the other big mechanic that i can think of off the top of my head which is um you put a uh when like certain things generate food and food or pay two mana tap or pay two mana sacrifice this food um gain uh gain three life which is not so powerful on its own, but there are a bunch of cards that like also use food as things, right? Like you can, uh, you can like, there's a one card, which has been very popular, which is big green troll, um, which, uh, if it's in your graveyard, you can bring it to the battlefield by sacrificing three food. Um, so I've seen a lot of food based decks. Um, but otherwise just a cool new set of cards. There's like, there's a bunch of knights, knights as, as a tribe. Um, there's, uh, there's like these tricolor commanderish things that like um, kind of drive certain themes of decks. Though I haven't seen a ton of them. Um, Nexus is still pretty popular. Um, not I don't you know a lot of the cards I don't like are still in the set. Not not enough of them rotated out in, in my humble opinion. Did uh, did Teferi rotate out? Yeah. Teferi okay. five. Yeah, Teferi three did not, and I hate Teferi three more than Teferi five. Oh okay. Wait. I uh, so they're two different. Yeah. There's so those like mana costs. Uh, that's general. That's just how you differentiate them. Yeah, Teferi three, which is still in, is the passive ability is opponents can't cast spells during your turn. Um, plus one, you can cast sorceries 
uh, whenever you cast instance, I think is what it is, for right, the next right, turn. Right, right. And then minus three is return a card to your uh, opponent's hand, or return a card to its controller's hand, draw a card. Um, uh, it's very, very annoying, um, and I hate it. Um, but, uh, you know, it's still there. Um, there is some, you know, I don't know. There's still, still some archetypes that are very strong, but I have fun kind of diddling around in like silver and gold, which is basically what I play at this point. So, um, I'm more in tune with just kind of like doing silly decks and having fun with it than I am about like really pushing, uh, high end, uh, high end, the winning decks, but, uh, you know. Um, I'm excited for them to maybe do a little bit more with the system now that it's kind of officially coming out of beta. Um, I don't know when exactly that happens, but it's supposed to happen soon. I think it goes to the Epic Game Store at that point, which is fine, right? Like, it's one unified account, so it's not like I'm going to lose anything. Um, but, uh, what, what, but, uh, you know, they, they've, they started experimenting with Tavern Brawl-ish type things, um, last season. Like, you would get, like, these matches where, um... You would get, uh, you you could like, you you only got like I think it's lands, and then you could, it's called like Momir's Challenge or something. You 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 have a, an emblem that lets you pay X mana, discard a card, summon a random creature with converted mana cost X. Um, so that was that that's a neat kind of uh, a way to do things. Um, and you know you've got other things like that. They've all been kind of like basic rules variation. Like all men, all spells cost zero. Um, so you know, play play big creatures or whatever. Um, and you don't have any lands in your deck or whatever. So, um, but it's all randomized or something. Uh, so uh, I'm excited to see what they do with it. They they had like a pre like the preview event for Eldrain had basically a commander style um, event. So hopefully that comes in, and I'll be really hype if they ever manage to get multiplayer magic in but i don't know if that's anywhere on the roadmap um but you know that's kind of my other big season pass game when i've been uh i've been waiting for you know i've, I've been grinding on uh i don't know indivisible comes out tomorrow i mean i'm what, what is indivisible indivisible is a uh is a strategy-ish game with like fighting games roots from the people who made uh Skullgirls. Um, it's been oh, in development okay. for a couple of years. I want to say I backed it back in like 2016 or 2015, um, and it's finally coming out tomorrow. So, um, and it looks really good. Hopefully, it will be. Um, uh, I'll talk about that more next week when I've got a chance to play it. Um, have I been doing anything else interesting? Um, probably not. Well, there's probably some gaming news that we can talk right, about. Right, yes. I did want to talk about some of this stuff. Um, so... I wanted to ask you in particular. So, Frogwares, the one of these most Frogwares is a company based in the Ukraine. Um, they make they are most famous for their Sherlock Holmes games. They also made the Sinking City. Um, all their titles pre- previous to Sinking City were published by this company called uh, Focus Home Entertainment. Um, uh, Sinking City was self published, and they're basically their publishing deal um, expired recently. And uh, uh, Focus Home apparently has a new policy. Where upon the end of of a licensing deal like this, they will not transfer the title to the original rights holders. So as a result, all of the games have come down off of all of the stores that they were currently on, and Frogwares is scrambling to uh, put those put those titles back up somewhere. I don't, I, I haven't checked on the story in like a week or so. So for all I know, it's back up. Um, but I know that this is part of the. Uh, 
some of the stuff that you do at Acapara, right? Like putting stuff up on mm-hmm. stores as a, uh, uh, in its capacity as a publisher. And I want to know if you had any thoughts about this kind of in general. Yeah, I mean, this is a really shitty thing to do. Um, but it it sounds, eh, like, reasonable, but, like, plausible um, as a uh, as something that a publisher would do if they wanted to be dicks, basically. Um, <laughs> if you'll allow me, as community manager of Akupara, to say, perhaps you should choose better publishers. <laughs> uh, no, but my, but the, <coughs> you know, <coughs> people think of, of publishers and they don't have a great sense for what they do because we think of them in kind of like the AAA sense, but there's actually a good number of indie game publishers. Probably the most, uh, the, the, it's Devolver, who, Devolver Digital, who are sort of like the most uh, visible indie game publishers, right? But there are a lot of games coming out today. There has never been a better time to be an indie game developer and to be making indie games. Um, Apple and Sony and Microsoft are paying huge amounts of money in order to get indie games on their stores because they understand, you know, like getting those games on the PS4, on the Xbox, on you know, Apple Arcade or whatever, right? Like, those are those are really valuable uh, propositions for them. And um, and developers don't have, you know, the, the, the money or the expertise to, to hire, you know, temp marketing teams and biz dev teams that have good relationships with Sony and know how to go through Sony's completely, like, esoteric submission structure for, like, builds and patches and everything like that. So this is a lot of reasons why indie games... Um, indie game developers find publishers they pair up with publishers because as a publisher you have that right i have that skill of navigating steam's back end or discord's back end or you know ps4's back end so that i can put your game up um in a way that'll satisfy you know them and kind of like all of their requirements uh i would never say that i think you know uh that the publishers are required but for a lot of developers especially two three person teams right it's a it's an important thing to have a relationship with a publisher uh that gets them there unfortunately this means that a lot of the time the publisher will have control over those platforms um and if something happens like it happened between frogware and their publisher uh they can be dicks about it right um most of the time you know like most of the time it is the publisher account that owns the product on the store even if they didn't like develop right like the game right right, right. they got a build from the developer and they put that build on the store and if the you know if they want to be jerks about something they could just pull it down off of the store stop the money getting sent in by steam um and yeah i i would honestly say uh that is it seems like a very short-term goal from the publisher to just like be be jerks i can't imagine this will last i'm sure steam support or sony support will be able to square away the developers before too much time uh too much time has passed but it is certainly uh it is certainly something that happens i've i've definitely heard a lot of horror horror stories since sort of making the jump down from triple a to indie titles about you know indie game publishers who you know do the bare minimum and they don't give a shit right or who uh barely put the man hours in to get you know to get your product up and off the ground um who are unresponsive and you know they don't get back to you um 
any of those kinds of things. Uh, yeah, there was there was that. another story, right, about um, they they did like console ports for a bunch <laughs> of PC games. Uh, I forget, with an N, I can't remember the name of it. Um, but there's a similar story like this, but uh, uh, nothing like Aquapara Games, right? They always take care of nothing. Their... Yeah, well, uh, so I mean, it, it also depends. Certain publishers have certain kinds of uh, especially right. like bigger corporate publishers. Like for instance, um, you'll see that like Bethesda or like Microsoft will be in like the credits of certain games. Most of the time, that indicates money, right? I, as an indie game developer, needed an extra $100,000 to finish my project or whatever, and I went to Microsoft and I sold them 5% of the game or whatever the case may be for that, like, hundred grand or whatever. Um, Akupar is the opposite. Akupar doesn't have any money, but we have a lot of expertise. So if you don't need money to, you know, like if you're not coming here hoping for, you know, a 200 grand cash injection, right, but you need expertise in social and community stuff in marketing in porting right all that stuff that's the kind of stuff that we can take care of um and so there are definitely times when you know there are publishers who just aren't you know like they just aren't trained and they're not going to give you the kind of support that you need if you are looking for that kind of support and to be honest it's a little bit of like you know, you just got to know what you're buying in a way when you're going out shopping for a publisher. Um, there is a very – there's a set of three really long in-depth articles that the CEO of my company, David Logan, wrote uh, on the Aquapara Games website called uh, Publishing 101, Publishing 102, Publishing 103. And it basically goes through – right, like Publishing 101 is like, okay, you're an indie game developer. Should I get a publisher, right? 102 is – I don't actually remember what Publishing 102 is is specifically about um and uh oh and so publishing 102 is about publishing 101 is about do i need a game developer publishing 102 is about how do i find the right publisher for me and then publishing 103 is what does a publisher look for right so it's kind of like the other side of the table um and those are all really interesting and in-depth uh, straightforward accounts of what the relationship between an indie game dev and an indie game publisher would sort of look like. Yeah, no, that, that sounds that sounds that sounds good. Can, can you send me those links that way? I can put them in the show notes. I will send you those links for sure. Yeah, well, excellent. Thanks, thanks for uh, for, for going through that. That's that's, that's enlightening. Um, uh, yeah, I, I guess I guess. There's not much else to talk about that unless you've had any many more thoughts about the frog war situation. Nope, that is uh, that you know that's it. That's, right. that's the um, that's the story. I I will point out that um I I know I keep plugging him on the show, but uh, Richard Hogue did a virtual legality about kind of like what the legal ramifications behind that kind of thing are, which is much more like business law oriented. I'll link that in the description as well. Um, but I find his stuff to be very interesting in terms of like business law stuff, which is obviously different from like a PR level stuff, which is. Or, or like you know, just kind of like developer relations stuff. But uh, um, yeah, I thought it was all very fascinating, and I'm glad that you could offer your insight. But I think that's all we have time for. Unless you had anything else you wanted to talk about, uh, I have nothing else I'm looking to talk about. All right. Well, that case, if you'd like to email us what you think about the Joker or uh, Banner Saga or any of the other things we talked about on the show, you could reach us at simderspaygames at gmail dot com or podcast at simderspaygames dot com. You can follow us at twitch.tv slash simderspaygames. Um, Subscribe to us on uh, SoundCloud and iTunes and Pocket Cast and wherever you can find podcasts. And if you if you're feeling very generous, you can donate us 
donate to us at patreon.com slash play games. Um, and I think that's everything we, uh, that's everything I had, buddy. Do you have anything else you want to promote? I have nothing else I'm looking to promote. In that case, until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners.